Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and this is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, I continue reading from Lost Rites, my memoir about loving the church and, in the end, leaving it. I was 16 when my family moved from Montreal to Toronto. My brief attempt to make a sartorial splash in my new school proved to be an embarrassing miscalculation. No one cared. The partying crowd was looking for recreational adventure. The youth group at church wanted more of Jesus, more and more and more. I found myself out of place, torn between the two groups. Here, then, is Chapter 3, Part 1 of Lost Rites. Leaving Churchland. And together we will flow as we sail into the mistake. Come on, come on. Toronto Public Schools had no dress code in 1969 and therefore no school uniform. High school students could wear pretty much whatever they wanted. This would be a switch for me and a welcome one. High schools in Montreal, both public and Catholic, required their students to wear a uniform. For guys, that meant gray flannel pants, white shirt and tie, and a blue blazer. For girls, a pleated skirt and knee socks, a white blouse and blazer. The school administrators tried to enforce a basic level of conformity in our dress, But as the swinging 60s boogied along, you could feel the school's resolve slipping away with every new attempt to circumvent the rules. The girls would hike up their skirts. The guys would untuck their shirts. Sometimes white shirts and blouses would be swapped out for something colorful, perhaps patterned. Jeans began to creep in, and there were no rules at all for what people did with their hair. Wearing a school uniform meant that whenever we met outside of school hours, like at a dance or at a house party, we had some self-expressing to do. Living in Montreal, the most fashion-conscious city in Canada at the time, we had our pick of retailers helping us to step out in high style, and there was something about Francophone culture as inspiration. They just knew how to spice things up. When I learned that students at my new school, York Mills Collegiate, could wear whatever they liked, I saw an opportunity to make a sartorial impression on my first day. Fortunately, back in Montreal, before we moved, my dad had taken me clothes shopping. It was a belated birthday gift and perhaps a guilt offering as well for the move. He met me at the bay downtown, which had a pretty good array of youthful clothing inspired by trends in London and San Francisco, hip duds dripping with flower power. 
I walked out of the store that day in a red paisley shirt with a high, stiff collar rising to my cheekbones, purple wide whale corduroy pants, and a two-inch wide leather belt with an imposing buckle. I didn't need to get shoes to complete the outfit. In Calgary during the summer, at the Stampede, I had bought myself a pair of suede cowboy boots. They'd do nicely. I gather I made quite the impression my first day at York Mills. That's what my friends eventually told me. In fact, they'd never seen anything quite like it. They didn't know how to react. Was this Montreal chic putting Toronto drab to shame? Was it some sort of personal eccentricity? Or was it just really, really bad taste? I wasn't sure either. But in any case, it was unsustainable. I had only the one outfit and could not possibly have kept up appearances with something new and flashy every day. So beginning with the boots, I began dressing down until a few days in, I looked more or less like everyone else. There was good reason for restraint in my efforts to make an impression in my new school. Making a splash was one thing. Being labeled a weirdo was another altogether. Plus, because of disparities between the Quebec and Ontario school systems, I was put ahead a year, from grade 11 to grade 12. So all my new classmates were 17 or 18, a full year older than I. The guys had facial hair, and the girls drove cars of their own. Most seemed uninterested in making their mark in school. At that age, they just wanted to get out. So my grand entrance failed to have the effect I was looking for. I fell in almost immediately with the Toronto friends of Dave, my buddy from Montreal, the same ones I'd spent part of the summer with at Thunder Beach. To them, I was this slightly exotic new kid who they already knew. Claiming first dibs on me, their circle opened to draw me in and then closed again behind me. But try as I might to be cool in my new school, I wasn't capable of it, especially when Brent came along. I knew Brent back in Beaconsfield through some connection between his mother and mine. He was brainy and socially awkward, what we would now call a nerd. He was one of the only guys in my old school who actually looked like he belonged in his school uniform. Brent's family were part of the great exodus of 1969 of Anglais fleeing Quebec for Ontario. He ended up at York Mills about a month after I did. At lunchtime, I already had my table mates in the cafeteria, and I was sitting with them the day Brent walked in, wearing his grey flannels, white shirt and tie, and blue blazer. At first, I pretended not to notice him. He took a seat all alone at a table not far away. It was painful watching him. While I had dived into the deep end to make sure I belonged, he wasn't even wiggling his toes in the water. He looked completely and hopelessly out of place. After a few minutes, I couldn't stand it. I know that guy, I said to my friends. I got up, took my tray, and went over to sit with him. Whether or not he appreciated it, I'll never know. He wasn't given to normal human emotions, let alone expressing them. My friends all made faces at me and slapped me on the back as they left. They could read the situation. Later, in a bro date cooked up by our mothers, 
I took Brent with me on public transit downtown to Maple Leaf Gardens to see a hockey game. He must have been having a happy time because as we walked home, without warning and without explanation, he pushed me headlong into a snowbank. I didn't feel too badly after that, letting him make his own damn friends as I went back to mine. My parents were not insensitive to the difficulties my sister and I faced as teenagers in yet another new city. They may even have wanted to use our move to Toronto as a hopeful new beginning to influence anew our cultural choices. So they began making social plans that included us. They bought theatre tickets and took us along with them as their young wards. Jacques Brel is alive and well and living in Paris was terrific, until a male cast member grabbed the breast of one of the female actors, prompting my mother to cast us a stern glance, as if to say, Now don't you look. We went to movies together, including 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I thought would have been way better to see stoned. And a few months later, it was. We also followed the pattern of every other move we'd ever made. We went to church. We were living in York Mills, a nouveau riche community in suburban Willowdale. It was a neighborhood with historical roots going back to William Lyon Mackenzie and the Upper Canada Rebellion. The rebels used to gather at the Jolly Miller Tavern on Young Street in Hogs Hollow to plan their misdeeds and drink to their imagined success. But the rebellion having failed, the area was solidly loyalist by the time we got there. The closest Anglican church was just up the hill from the Jolly Miller and just down the street from where we were once again renting a house before we found one to buy. St. John's York Mills sounded aristocratically British, like a titled, hyphenated family name. It was everything that Little St. Martin's in North Vancouver may have wanted to be, a step up the ladder from those humble beginnings. Several steps, perhaps. St. John's was well-appointed, with a bell tower and a world-class pipe organ, a well-kept cemetery, and a full-sized lich gate you could actually drive a hearse through. Certain areas of the cemetery were set apart as family burial plots, some bearing the names of Toronto's founding dynasties, like the Van Nostrand family. We could feel the wealth as we walked in on our first Sunday morning, with the church's plush red carpets, white walls, and polished pews. We were escorted to our seats by ushers wearing white carnations in their lapels. According to the service bulletin, that very evening the youth group was meeting at the church to go off on a field trip to hear a speaker at some neighboring church. I wasn't sure about it, but my parents urged me to go along. They dropped me off that evening just as young people my age were climbing into cars. The assistant curate spotted me. You got wheels? he asked. No, I didn't have wheels. Did I want to go with him? I hopped in. He introduced himself as Dave Ward, fixed me with his steely blue eyes, and asked if I believed in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said this while grinning at me, as if perhaps this might have been some sort of trick question. I wasn't sure exactly what he was talking about. He explained it to me en route. In creation, he said, matter came from energy 
and energy came from spirit, which was God. Jesus' resurrection reversed that process, matter returning to energy, allowing him to appear and disappear and walk through walls, and energy to spirit, which is God. Jesus' resurrection completed the cycle, leading us back to God who created us. So, did I believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? I wasn't sure about any of that. It made my head hurt, but I was impressed. What we would now call his elevator speech gave me something to think about. It was a teaser. I was even more impressed when, at the lecture, he rose to challenge the speaker, who was promoting pacifism as an ethical imperative for Christians. Are you saying, Dave said, rising to confront the speaker with the same grin he'd flashed at me in the car, that if someone attacks my wife, I couldn't use force to defend her? It was more complicated than that, the speaker tried to explain, but Dave wasn't having it. He continued to press the point until his welcome and ours as well as Dave's cohort began to wear a little thin. When we walked out at the end of the evening, it was with a sense of triumph. This was unlike any minister I'd ever met. Dave was in his mid-thirties and youthful in appearance with wavy hair, sparkling eyes full of mischief and that disarming grin. He challenged authority figures and sprinkled his conversation with words like cool and groovy. It was like having an advocate, someone who could speak our language to our parents, which he did whenever he preached at St. John's on Sunday mornings. The adults may have been taken aback by his brashness, but I was hooked. St. John's had a thriving youth group. It emanated from the drop-in, a designated youth room down in the labyrinthine bowels of the church. The group comprised several hundred young people citywide, though the core group was probably a few dozen. They were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Dave Ward. Welcoming a newcomer like me was an easy and obvious place for them to start. So they witnessed to me, telling me how they had come to the Lord. They were my age, attractive, glowing with self-confidence, and they seemed to have found something I didn't even know I was looking for. Remember the young woman who rose to the mic at the youth gathering I attended in Montreal to suggest that we pray? These were her Toronto cousins. But while she invited cynicism with her plain appearance and her appeal on behalf of a personal God we could talk to, these disciples of Jesus were to be taken seriously. They were bold, unapologetic, and infectious in their faith. The walls of the drop-in were proudly festooned in painted swirls and flowers, the pop art of the day, with slogans that broadcast their evangelical enthusiasm. If you got it, baby, flaunt it, one read. Another said simply, Jesus, in bold caps. If St. Martin's Church in North Vancouver had prepared the ground for my faith, and St. Mary's in Montreal had watered the seed, St. John's was about to bring in the harvest, I felt like I had come home again, but in an entirely new way. I had a problem, albeit a very teenage problem. I now had two very different groups of friends, like the poster of the top-hatted, starred and striped Uncle Sam, 
they both wanted me. Unlike my circles of friends in Montreal, the nice kids and the nasties, which I was able to straddle, these groups were each making a claim on me, demanding that I choose between them. The cottage crowd was a lot of fun. It included my buddy Dave's friends, the ones I knew at school, and their friends from across the city. Some were Catholics, though that didn't seem to make any difference here. The humor, often expressed in sarcasm, was quick and wicked and thrilling. As long as you weren't the target, when you were, things could get ugly pretty fast. It was a dog-eat-dog world. But they called me BP, as in, hey, BP, that's a gas, which I took as a term of endearment and of belonging. On weekends, a few of us might gather in someone's basement, where we smoked pot and drank beer, bobbing our heads to King Crimson or the Moody Blues, bathed in the fluorescent glow of black lights. Every so often there would be a coming together of the whole tribe. The venues certainly got better then, including sprawling wood-paneled mansions, resplendent in leather couches and crystal chandeliers, wherever the parents were away or didn't care. The drugs tended to be soft and recreational. We smoked them rather than dropping or injecting them, though there were pathways leading to other substances and to other tribes if someone wanted to get into more serious trouble, like, for the hardcore stoners, joining the squatters' camp hidden in the North York Ravine, some of whose residents lived there year-round, having been kicked out of their homes. By comparison, my church friends seemed so sunny. Their faith may have wielded a sort of judgment, especially about their heathen parents and the fallen ways of the world, but they lived with the eternal optimism that God really did love us and have a plan for our lives. We only had to believe and invite him into our hearts. Those who did, those who chose to walk in the light, got to belong. This meant your friends could comment on your personal life, which could get a little cloying sometimes, like wondering if you'd prayed about that thing you were thinking of doing, like sleeping with your girlfriend. Had you taken it to the Lord? One Christian friend got his girlfriend pregnant. Her parents pleaded with her to get an abortion, which they would arrange and pay for. Instead, the two of them, neither 18 yet, did the right thing, owned their mistake, and took on the role of husband and wife-to-be. They invited Joan, my new girlfriend, and me over for dinner one night. It all felt like some horrible charade. They offered us non-alcoholic cocktails, and we ate in the formal dining room of the bride's parents' home, where we tried to make polite, grown-up conversation. I felt like crawling out of my skin. I wanted someone to yell, cut, so we could all just go back to acting normal. Fortunately, perhaps because that evening traumatized them, as it did us, the couple came to their senses. He left her, and she had the abortion. We weren't politicized yet about those sorts of things, so we all just breathed a sigh of relief, thanked God, and moved on. The church group was in some ways more forgiving than the party group. It was more dog-praise-for-dog than dog-eat-dog. I didn't have to act cool with them or watch my back. I could relax and be myself. But it was still a pack, and it expected your allegiance— some day, and they weren't saying that day was going to come, either group, like Don Corleone, might ask a service of you. 
I held off making a decision for as long as I could. On Saturday nights, I might be floating on a cloud of Jimi Hendrix's purple haze. Sunday evening, I would be at the youth service at St. John's, playing my guitar and singing, I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. Both seemed important to me. Choosing would mean opting for either light or darkness, when part of me protested that a life fully lived should be both and. It was Christmas Eve, and I was at church with my parents when I finally stepped over the line. It's hard to say what did it. Maybe if the devil had a comfy house of worship of his own, with a pipe organ, flickering candlelight that dripped with nostalgia, and a really good choir, things might have gone the other way. But sitting in church, surrounded by good people singing familiar carols, my heart was, as they say, strangely warmed. I heard a gentle knocking at the door. It was Jesus. I wanted to open up and let him in, just as the other kids had done. Jesus, I said inwardly, I don't know if you're even there, but if you are, come into my heart. That was the formula I had heard others use. I waited for a moment for something to happen. It didn't. I wasn't sure what else I was supposed to say or do, so I signed off. Amen. On our way home in the car, I didn't see any shooting stars in the heavens or hear angelic voices praising God, but I did feel an inner glow, like I had just made a good decision. I told my parents what I'd done. Well, that's nice, dear, they said, though I imagined they were more relieved than they let on. One week later, fueled by a six-pack of apple cider, of all things, I found myself at a party in a large house in North Toronto, dancing on top of someone's solid oak dining room table. In that moment, with the pounding of the music and the heat of the crowded room, I looked around and knew that this was stupid. It was time to make good on my invitation to Jesus. So in the weeks that followed, I started hanging out more and more with my Christian friends. They weren't as slick or as funny as my boozing buddies, but most of them were pretty smart, some at the top of their class, and they seemed a better influence for a young guy ready to change his ways and grow up. Chief among them was my new friend John. We would enter our adult journeys on parallel paths that continue like that to this day. John is practical where I am idealistic. He fixes cars while I write songs. His faith fulfills him as a personal relationship with Jesus, while mine is more, shall we say, mystical. But he had then, as he has now, a good heart. And his good heart called to mine, reminding me of who I was and who I wanted to be. And when the fog on blows, I've been reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. I hope that some of my stories awaken some of your own, and not just those of youth culture in the drug-addled 1960s. Every generation has had its own temptations and opportunities while surviving the teen years. I would be pleased to hear some of your stories, and I know others would too. So please write me at mysticcaveman53 
at gmail.com or leave a comment on Twitter at Brian E. Pearson one with the hashtag The Mystic Cave. Or better yet, as the journey continues, let's meet in our own space on Facebook in a new group I've set up called, naturally, The Mystic Cave. Thanks for joining me. I'm Brian Pearson, and this has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too